Welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival podcast. We are looking forward to another wonderful weekend from the evening of July 25 through to Sunday, July 28. Dive into the heart of New Zealand's storytelling in beautiful Marlborough. Don't forget to visit our website at marlborobookfest.co.nz and sign up for our newsletter. For now, please enjoy this session from the 2023 Marlborough Book Festival. Welcome everybody, I'm Sonia O'Regan, I'm from the team behind the event and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this, the opening of the Marlborough Book Festival 2023. It's wonderful to come together at the start of the weekend to hear the stories from five guest authors on the theme of the heart of the matter. Consider tonight a taster, a sample of some of the good things to come. Each author will speak for about eight minutes on a theme. The theme is the heart of the matter. Now, I'm not going to pop up and down between to introduce the authors. They will follow one on one after the other and return to their seats in the audience. So there might be a few minutes between them, and I'm sure this is going to be filled with applause. <laughs> the, orders of, the order of speakers is this. Joanne Drayton, Eileen Merriman, Christina Sanders, Michael Bennett, and Joanna Preston. These are five of the 16 authors who will speak at 23 sessions over the weekend to come. We're really honoured and just love having the authors to stay and they've been a pleasure so far and we just can't wait to hear from you over the weekend. So I now invite Joanne Drayton to the stage. Thanks, Joanne. Wow. Wow, this is amazing. Um, I thought there was just going to be people here, but it looks like there's a whole audience. So um, I'm very impressed. Um, I, I, I'm just going to set a timer here uh, so that I don't go over time. But the heart of the matter, I have a number of things that I want to identify um, really as being um, the heart of the matter for me. Um, but I, I want first maybe to start with getting you to imagine uh, the person who you would most like to have a conversation with, the author, writer, creative, whatever. Uh, imagine that person. Um, and then I'm going to tell you the one that I have in mind. Uh, so imagine yours and hold on to it uh, because my one is Virginia Woolf. And I guess because uh, she had such an awesome career, so, so groundbreaking, um, and, and in many ways such a complicated and interesting life, I found um, as, a, as a researcher, as a young student as well, uh, the whole Bloomsbury thing was fascinating. Uh, you know, you know the story. They they lived in squares and loved in triangles. Um, so, so I, I it was Bloomsbury that I, I really. Um, Kind of really floated, floated my imag boat and imagination, if you if you know what I mean. Um, the writing, the creative um, uh, group was was fascinating. So um, you can imagine what happened to me when when sort of not exactly Virginia Woolf, but the her best representative uh, and I became uh, correspondents. And and what happened was um, I was writing a book on Francis Hodgkins. 
and um, I, I needed to get permission uh, to reproduce a, a painting, and the time was ticking on. It was a painting by Duncan Grant, and I, I wrote a letter, a random kind of letter. I put a stamp on it. In those days, you did that sort of thing, and I sent it off, and, and it was it was asking Henrietta Garnet, um, who is the great-niece of uh, Virginia Woolf. She has the, um, the copyright for all of the key players, Virginia Woolf in those days, uh, uh, Vanessa Bell, Duncan Grant, and many others in that group. And so I I sent my little letter off, I stuck my stamp on it, and um, that it was getting very close to publication, and I'm getting really worried because I haven't got permission, but the the image is still in the book. And so finally, um, I I had a dinner party in Auckland, occasionally I do that, and um, I, 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 the conversation must have lagged a bit. I went and checked my emails, and on it was this email from Henrietta Garnet, and I couldn't believe it. And she said, she writes, "Dear Dr. Joanne Drayton, uh, please forgive me for not having answered your request before, but it was forwarded to an old address. I am very happy to give you permission to reproduce the tug, the tub, by Duncan Grant in the forthcoming publication of Francis Hodgkins. There is no reproduction fee, so I shall be happy to receive one copy of the book on the date of publication sent to the Society of Authors, 84 Drayton Gardens. I'm Joanne Drayton, by the way. Just, just. So I thought, oh my God, I can't believe she wrote to me. So, um, so I, 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 I announced that to the dinner party, and then, um, and then, and then wrote later on. And I wrote, I was trying to be impressive, you know. I, I well know the vagaries of the postal system. I wrote back in my email, but that was kind of just like I just, just didn't know that long word. And anyway, so it went, it went off, and it went off to. I, I just. I, but I said I would be really happy uh, to um, to send you a book, and I made um, uh, you know I said especially to your auspicious address, expecting that she might kind of connect the the two. But um, she, so, and I thought, well, you know, that's probably the end of it. So I said, you know, thank you again for your generosity, kindest regards, Joanne Drayton. So she writes back, I can't believe it. It arrived actually at, towards the end of the dinner party. And so it goes, dear Dr. Drayton, no, Joanne, um, I am so glad that it all turned out satisfactorily. But what I am dying to know is what are your English, uh, your family's English origins and what have they to do with the Society of Authors? Um, you could put this down to idle curiosity, but people do fascinate me, which is why I write. Uh, or you could put it down to um, Sunday morning after a late night and a lively discussion about the Dictionary of National Biography and, and Heroes and Villains. Now, I can tell you it's probably much more to do with the wine. But anyway, um, yeah, so I wrote back and I said, um, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by people too. Uh, my New Zealand, uh, my, my family came from Market Drayton um, uh, and... It just made me laugh to see my last name as part of the Society of Authors Address, Drayton Gardens. And I thought, well, this is, this will be it. Lovely to hear from you. And again, thanks for your generosity. And so I thought that was the end of it. And then I get, dear Joe. <laughs> dear Joe, Market Drayton is a beautiful town of thick, half-timbered buildings in Shropshire where Clive of India, possibly your illustrious cousin, was born. And so began, so began a conversation between us that, um, that 
passed from there to, uh, and, and ended up being um, 190,000 words uh, in emails. And you can kind of see how that might happen. And it was, I felt like, I felt like I had literally fallen through, you know, a rabbit hole. I, 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 I remember what Alice said. She, she fell down the rabbit hole and she goes down, down, down. Would the fall never come to an end? I wonder how many miles I've fallen by this time. She, she said aloud, I must be getting somewhere nearer the center of the earth. And I felt like I had. Uh, and, um, in a way, it was, it was a remarkable relationship. Uh, she writes here, um, uh, coming back to England after an absence of 25 years in France, I find it truly an exotic island. At the moment, I am uh, staying in a truly horrible flat in Russell Square in Bloomsbury. I hope to find a more sympathetic one soon. Uh, yesterday, I went to Charleston and was mesmerised by Eileen's Atkin, Eileen Atkins giving a performance of Virginia Woolf's uh, reading, A Room of One's Own. Charleston is looking very lovely, even if going back there makes me feel a bit like Alice through the looking glass. I went with a friend and we took a picnic and ate in the garden. It was a bank holiday in England and raining. And, as, as you'd expect... Um, and I, I, I think, um, I think that that in, in the way, in a way is the heart for me, uh, of it is about correspondence. It is about dialogue. And it is about that, those amazing rabbit holes that you fall down, um, and, and you suddenly find yourself in a different world talking to a different person. But across the generations gaps, um, different places that we both came from, we found that sort of resonance. And I think uh, part of that was because uh, really we loved people uh, and, and we loved writing and, and, and that was a great thing. And I, and I really uh, just want to finish with um, a really um, poignant we actually are called the things, the letters we wrote, and I collected them together. By the way, the ephemeral world of um, uh, email needs to be collected. And I gave them to her as a gift, and I called them the patches of blue. And it's, it's Proust. And uh, the quote that I put on the first book was, the real voyage of discovery consists not of seeing new landscapes, but of having new eyes. And I think that's the heart of the matter. Thank you. Okay, so I'm Eileen Merriman. Um, I'm a writer and an academic. I'm going to give you a dissertation on an alien. Abstract. An 18-year-old alien moves to Dunedin to study. There she eats minerals, deconstructs, ingests poison, disintegrates and ultimately reassembles. There is no moral to this story. Introduction. On the first day, I sit cross-legged on the desk in my sixth-floor hostel room, gazing out over the Lego-like buildings below. Beyond these, the harbour. Beyond that, the fathomless ocean. Fathomless, that's me. Aims, one, to get into medical school. Two, to make lots of friends. Three, to find a boyfriend. Methods and materials. On the first night, I drink beer with a boy from Wellington, a beautiful girl from Invercargill, and an acerbic girl from Auckland. Soon enough, we tip down the hill to the pub for more beer, Three pints later, I stand in a blurred line for the toilet, a brief escape from the talking heads around me. My face in the mirror is rosé. Or perhaps it's just red and blotchy. 
dried salt lines on my cheeks from the tears I shed when I realised I was an alien. On the second day, I line up with 999 other wannabe medical students, some with private school accents and carefully distressed jeans. I look around for other aliens, but I don't see anyone else looking lost or frightened. That evening, I drink beer and listen to the incomprehensible conversation of my fellow freshers. I try to join in, but my voice is too loud, and their eyes pass over me as if I'm not even there. In the urine-scented toilet cubicle, I dig crescent moons into my thighs before chewing my nails to the bloody quick. Then I walk home with Wellington Boy and let him do things to me in his room until I escape into the shower. On nights three, four and five, I switch to cider drinking until I crack open and the tears escape once more. A Serbic Auckland girl says, you try too hard, that's your problem. Beautiful Invercargill girl says, you get really drunk and then you go all quiet and I worry about you. But that doesn't stop her going off with Wellington Boy for non-alien sex. For most of day six, Sunday, I wallow in my sweaty sheets. A Serbic Auckland girl says, come to the pub. I say, I might stay back, have a quiet one. On night seven, I stay in my room, alternately smelling the pages of my new textbooks and copying anatomically correct diagrams of hearts and blood vessels and slices of brain into my diary. Most memories are stored in the amygdala and hippocampus. As I'm an alien, I don't know if this is true for me. There are many truths I'm unsure of. That evening, a Serbic Auckland girl and beautiful Invercargill girl tease Wellington Boy about a series of one-night stands, one, a different girl for each day of the week. I say stud and slut are gender-specific nouns. Beautiful Invercargill girl says, why do you have to be so fucking judgy? After retreating to my room, I copy anatomically correct pictures of genitalia on my white, white belly. On days 8 to 11, I learn about the pathway for glucose metabolism in the cell, the differences between respiratory and metabolic acidosis and how to sleep with earplugs in. The earplugs don't shut out the voices in my head, which tell me I'm fat and ugly and socially inept. When I finally fall asleep, I dream of Picasso faces and jokes with spikes in. In the morning, I write in my diary, dreams equals reality equals dreams. This seems as though it can be a truth, although an unsettling one. On day 12, my hostel mates have a drinking race, North Islanders versus South Islanders. We sit on the lawn above the hostel, a semi-Arctic breeze ruffling our hair. I'm in a panic because yesterday I learned how many kilojoules are in a standard drink and I'm not sure I'm ever going to be able to burn them off, even if I run on the spot in my room all night. But because I'm ugly and fat and socially inept, I tip beer down my throat until it comes back up again. By that stage, I'm sitting in the fathomless lawn and everyone is laughing. I guess they're laughing at me, but I don't even know. On day 13, I hide in my room, drawing anatomically correct diagrams of the digestive system on my legs. I have an esophagus on my left and an anus near my right knee. When I venture onto the corridor, Wellington boy says, what the hell, you're so weird. And beautiful Invercargill girl says, has anyone ever told you you have a monobrow? After that, she kindly offers to wax my eyebrows. When I look in the mirror, I don't resemble me anymore, just another Picasso face. On days 14 to 21, I draw and eat and sleep and drink, drink, drink. The inside of my gut is turned to stainless steel. The inside of my head is full of everyone else's words, alphabet soup. There isn't enough space in my abdomen for the deconstructed picture of my brain, so I switch to my wall. The temporal lobes and pituitary glands soar above a cauliflower-like cerebellum and broccoli stalk brainstem. It's perhaps disturbing that the brain looks so edible. On day 22, I draw a four-chambered heart on the wall between a Serbic Auckland girl and me. When I go to sleep, I feel the walls expanding and contracting around me, and the booming is so loud it blocks out all the voices in my head. On day 23, it's unseasonably warm, 25 degrees, but instead of going to the beach with the others, I walk back to the hostel. The tar is bubbling on the road, which is so steep I'm worried about sliding off the face of the earth, an alien in orbit. I lie on the footbath and push pieces of gravel between my lips, grinding the rock candy between my teeth before swallowing them one by one. 
on days 24 to 31 I ingest more gravel as well as shiny white pebbles from the gardens and once an ochre stone I find at the feet of the Robbie Byrne statue. Every time I whisper to myself I am of this earth, I am grounded, I am a mineral, vegetable, animal. At night I lie in bed listening to the blood rush through my ears. River rapids, a tsunami is coming. Results. On the evening of day 33 I drink so much I black out. When I wake him in bed and Wellington boy is lying on top of me, before I can tell him no, he has cleaved me in two. No matter what I do, no matter how hard I scrub, I can't seem to put myself back together again. This is what Wellington boy said after he finished his quick and bloody deed. You know what your problem is? Once a slut, always a slut. The Serbic Auckland girl says, you know what your problem is? You never talk to anyone. No wonder you don't have any friends. Beautiful Invercargill girl says, you drink and drink and drink and then you go all quiet. That's what your problem is. They're wrong. The problem is buried deep within my amygdala, a hippocampal horror. On days 41 to 55, I stockpile tablets, aspirin, paracetamol, ibuprofen. On day 56, I come home early from a lecture about the kidney and swallow them all. The voices in my head say, slut and be quiet, and you've been flirting with me for weeks. I'm no longer sure which voices are mine and which are memories from my hippocampal house of horrors. The vomiting starts three hours later. Soon enough, the ringing in my ears is loud enough to drown out the voices. A Serbic Auckland girl intercepts me in the corridor that evening and says, are you all right? You've been spewing for hours. Beautiful Invercargill girl says, look at you, you're not even breathing right. That's probably because my lungs have turned to strawberry mousse. That's probably because I have an acute kidney injury. I pluck a few words out of my alphabet suit, touch of gastro, just need to sleep, and creep back into my room. The bones inside my ears have turned into symbol. The heart on my wall contracts around me tighter and tighter. My vision fractures. I turn face down on my pillow and wait for oblivion. The next morning, the hospital rector takes me to hospital. Here is a needle in my arm, an antidote for my chemical solution. Here is a charcoal drink to absorb the undigested pills in my stainless steel gut. Charcoal is made of carbon and ash. It is produced by the heating of wood or other substances in an oxygen-starved environment. The doctors talk over me using words like underweight and dissociation and capacity to consent. I want to tell them that consent is to lie still and wait for it to be over so he doesn't hurt you even more. I want to tell them I did not have the capacity to consent then, and I certainly don't have it now. On the 61st day, I emerged from my fog long enough to tell the psychiatrist about what the Wellington boy did to me. Several days later, Wellington boy will tell the police the sex was a figment of my imagination. He will tell the police the only sex we'd had was in the anatomically correct picture I draw on my wall. Conclusion. And really, there is no defence for that. No words I can pull from my alphabet suit to combat Wellington boy's slippery alternative truths. There are many truths I'm unsure of, but I know this. Years later, I will say me too and arise from the ashes anew. Kia ora My name's Christina Sanders, and the heart of the matter to me is Turanga Waiwai. And Turanga Waiwai in Māori culture means a place to have your identity, a place to belong, a place to call home. And a kaumatua once said to me very elegantly that his idea of Turanga Waiwai is a place where he can go and he can stamp his feet and the earth will stamp back. And I love that. It's this idea that it's a place that not only you feel you know the culture and you feel you belong, but a place where that, uh, the culture and the people know you. So you go there and you feel at home. You can stamp your feet and the ground says, hey, you're back. Kia your home. And I love that. Um, it's something that the, the Māori culture will say very elegantly, but of course, this idea of having a home 
is true of many cultures, true of probably almost all cultures. This idea there's a place you want to come home to, a place where you belong, and you're going to go home to it. And it's um, a lot of books write about this idea, this idea of going away and coming home, this idea of there being a place where you need to come back to. And some of the books are obvious ones, like The Incredible Journey, you know, that one where the dogs and the cat go off on a journey, and they find their way home over hundreds of miles. And we feel for them, because we know what it's like to want to go home. It's that drive, you want to go home. But it's also true of more recent books. Um, Sue McCauley wrote a book this year called Landed, about a woman who has a midlife crisis. She loses her husband, she loses her house. And she just wants to go home. She wants to go home to where she lives, to the place where she grew up, to the farm she knows, and to where the people who live there know her, and she knows them, and she can feel that connection. And that, to me, feels like Taranga Waiwai. And it's a, it's a subject that I like to write about in the books that I write. But sometimes I write about unrequited Taranga Waiwai. And that, to me, seems like quite a big thing in New Zealand. We've all come from other places to end up here. And the Turanga Waiwai that is unrequited is when you leave your home and you come away and it's because of, um, it could be because you're a refugee or because you choose to go, it's a push or a pull, but for some reason you've left your home behind and you've come to live in a new place. And my book displaces about this quite literally. They, they're displaced from their home, they come to New Zealand and they displace other people when they arrive here. But it's this idea of this lack of connection and you've, you've lost your home. You don't have the place to go home to. And, um, yeah, I have, I have this also fascination for people who spend a lot of time at sea. And I'm a sailor. I spend a lot of time sailing with the guys. They're 10 days on, 10 days off, 10 days on, 10 days off. And um, they say that's their home. You say, you know, where, where, do you, where do you live? Where's your home? And they say, this is it. I feel at home on the boat. And this is also true in the past. Um, our second governor, Robert Fitzroy, he was a captain on the Beagle with Charles Darwin. And Charles Darwin asked him, where's your home? Where, where, where do you feel at home? And Fitzroy had no option. He said, this is it. I'm, I'm home here on my ship. This ship is my home. And it's quite funny because he has no turanga to stamp his waiwai on, but he still feels that that is his home. That's where he belongs. Um, and... I think um, those of you who have studied creative writing, I'm sure there's some people here who have, know this idea of this, the hero's journey, this sort of circle. And I think it's true in our lives as well as in literature, but you start off with a place where you belong, a place where you're at home and you're comfortable and this is your life, and then something happens to throw that out and you leave home. You're, you either go voluntarily or forced to leave home and you go on a journey. And it might be an outward journey or it might be an internal journey, but you leave from the place where you feel safe and you go away. And it's like a child playing um, on, on, in a park with their parents and they go away a few steps and a few more steps and they look back and they come home again. And they go away and they look and they want to come home again. But sometimes you go too far and you go on this journey and you meet people on the journey and you do whatever you do on a journey, fight dragons, go searching, go adventuring. But you want to come home and this idea of coming home. And T.S. Eliot um, says it very beautifully. He says, the end of our exploring will to be arrive where we started and to know it for the first time. So this idea that you come back and you think, ah, this is it, here I am, I'm home. And that is a very powerful feeling, if you've ever felt it, to go away and to come back and think, oh, thank God, I'm home. You'll know what I mean. And I want to give you two examples of this. Um, the first is my friend, Rena, And Rena was born in Fiji. 
uh, sorry, Rina was born in India and then moved to Fiji when she was a year old. They lived in this lovely Fiji, uh, Indian community in Fiji and she was a child there. Then they moved to New Zealand and the family grew up in New Zealand. She was there through her schooling years, a big Indian community. She felt part of that. That was really her home there. And then when she was a bit older, she moved to Melbourne to go to university and she stepped away from the Indian community and she became her own woman. She thought, this, I have my own identity. I'm not tied to that. I can actually be an individual person. And she felt very strongly that Melbourne was her home. And then for the last 30 years, she's been living in England. And I used to go traveling with Rena a bit. And we would go to a foreign country and sit somewhere in a bar like you do. And people would come up and talk to you and they'd say, where are you from? For me, it was easy. I'm from New Zealand. I'm living in London. But Rena had a really strong reaction to that. She didn't like that question. And it was either a really, really long, lengthy question, which people didn't really want, or, or she, she felt she was telling some sort of fib. And she really hated it. We used to say, you know, Rena, where are you from? And she, would, she couldn't quite cope with it. She really didn't like that. And it's because she doesn't have this. She had nowhere to really call her Taranga Waiwai. And on the other hand, another example I have is my friend Pierre, and he's recently gone back to Strasbourg in France, where he's from, and he's been 30 years in New Zealand, and he feels at home here. He's got an ex-wife, he's got a child, he's, he's got a big community, he's very fond of New Zealand. But he went back to Strasbourg, and he said he stood on um, a bridge in the middle of the city, and he looked out at the mountains, and he said, I, I recognized every curve of those mountains. And he felt the river rushing under him. He, he knows the sound. He knew that place so well. And he was there for a school reunion, and he met a woman there. And he said he stood on the bridge and looked into her eyes, and he said, this is it. I'm in love. I'm home. And he looked into her eyes and thought she saw him and he saw her because it was this communal, this frame of reference, this childhood they'd had together. And I'm a bit of a skeptic, and I said, look, isn't this just some sort of um, nostalgia? You know, nostalgia for a place where you grew up, a place where you were happy, a home you had. And I think, yeah, it probably is. But also, I think I got the idea that this geographical nostalgia is Taranga Waiwai. It's somewhere we go home, and it doesn't have to, you don't have to own the piece of land. But for a lot of us, you go to a place and you think, finally, this is it. I'm, I'm back, and I know that people understand me and they understand, and I understand them. So I think in a way it's a bit like love. You don't really find it. If you go looking for it, you don't know where it is. It's, sometimes it comes upon you unexpectedly. But when you find it, you know. Thank you. Um, um, Sonia told us the brief for this talk tonight was Heart of the Matter can be true story, can be complete fiction, can be silly and left field, it can be personal. I've gone with personal mixed with a little bit of marine biology. <laughs> Thank you, Sean. 
I've been thinking a lot lately about Turritopsis dani. Turritopsis dani is a kind of jellyfish that is found worldwide in temperate and tropical waters. It's bell-shaped, it's 4.5 millimetres long. As a child, it has 20 tentacles. When it becomes an adult, it has 80 to 90 tentacles. And there's something truly extraordinary about Turritopsis dani. If it gets injured, or if it gets ill, or if it just gets old and worn out, it reboots. It goes back to childhood. It goes back to being a 20-tentacle baby jellyfish. It starts again. And the cycle happens again and again and again and again for eternity. For this reason, Turritopsis dani is better known as the immortal jellyfish. The immortal jellyfish reproduces itself. It whakapapas to itself. It has no mother. It has no father. It is its own mother and father. That is really quite something. I have a mother and father. When I was tiny, I remember my dad coming into my room in the middle of the night. We were the first people to get tally in our little village. Dad put me on his knee. The living room was full of our neighbours gathered there watching the flickering images on the black and white screen. Dad held on to me and he quietly explained why what was happening on that screen in the middle of the night was really important for me to watch. Sitting on my dad's knee, I watched a man, the first man to do so, putting his foot on the surface of the moon. My mum was a writer, an academic, a woman with a brilliant mind. She met my dad when she was writing a biography of his dad, the first Māori bishop of Aotearoa. One of the things mum loved to do was debate. I remember as a young boy listening to one of mum's endless debates with my big brother Paul, who, God bless him, was every bit as strong-willed, eloquent and bloody-minded as my mum. Mum would say, I want to be buried under a tree in our backyard. Forget about a box. She wanted Paul to dig a hole lay her down in the earth, cover her with soil, food for the worms. Paul suggested that logically this may not be allowed to happen. There are council bylaws. A dog will dig you up and run off with your leg bone. <laughs> Mum would consider Paul's points, then she'd say, I want to be buried under a tree in our backyard. And the discussion would start again, and the next night it would start again, and on and on. I've been thinking a lot lately about the immortal jellyfish. The immortal jellyfish goes through puberty. It reaches maturity time and time again, but it never mates. It never has a lover. The immortal jellyfish is its own mate through the entirety of eternity. The immortal jellyfish never falls in love. That is really quite something. I fell in love. I met Jane at film school in Sydney. She's a designer and artist of brilliant mind and stylish with a capital S. I'm not. Fortunately, when we first met, it was in a dark corridor in Sydney. Particularly bad lighting, so she didn't really register my dress sense. A week later, I borrowed a leather jacket from a friend. I got a ride with our friend Barry from film school in North Sydney, back to town. 
and I found myself in the back seat of Barry's Chevy Impala next to Jane. We talked the whole way back to Surrey Hills. When we dropped Jane off, my friend said, you realise you talked for an hour and both of you spent the whole time looking at each other's lips? You're going to fall in love. My friend was right, apart from the timeline. I was already in love. After that ride back to Surrey Hills, Jane and I have been together since. My dress sense has gotten a bit better. Jane and I make things together. We made a home, we write together, we make films together, we make television together, and we made these three together. We made three extraordinary little people who became three extraordinary big people. They are beautiful, they are bold, they are brilliant, they are passionate artists. They each care about the world, about justice, about their fellow woman and man. The world is a little bit better because Jane and I found ourselves next to each other in the backseat of that Chevy Impala. I've been thinking a lot lately about the immortal jellyfish. The immortal jellyfish never dies. It never dies. It never has to say goodbye. That is really quite something. When I was 20 years old, I had a dream of my dad. He hugged me in the dream. This was an unusual dream for me. Dad never really hugged me as an adult. That's what dads of my generation and the generations after me do. But in the dream, he hugged me, he held me. It was warm and it was good. I woke up a little later to a phone call. Dad had died a half hour earlier while I was dreaming. He'd come to me to dream in that dream to hug me, the thing that he never really did, to say goodbye. Many years later, Mum died in Rotorua Hospital. Jane and I and the kids got there an hour after she passed. We went and sat in the chapel with her. I remember Jane saying, in a way, it was good we didn't arrive in time because she didn't think I'd be able to let mum go. In the chapel, I held mum's hand. There's a thing that happens, the relaxing of muscle tension after somebody dies. Sitting there in the chapel, holding mum's hand, she squeezed my hand. There's a scientific explanation for what happened, but science only goes so far. I know mum waited for me to get there, then she squeezed my hand and she said goodbye. I've been thinking a lot lately about the immortal jellyfish. I think about the jellyfish and its immortality. But of course, I'm really thinking about me and my mortality. There's a flaming lip song that says, everyone you know someday will die. There's a thing Bruce Springsteen started talking about in his concerts after he turned 60, that when you reach a certain age, There are more and more of the people we love who aren't here anymore, but they're still here walking beside us. When the immortal jellyfish starts to break down and decay, it turns back time and it starts again. I am breaking down and decaying. I ran 54 marathons before I turned 50, and to no one's surprise except me, I have arthritis and I'll never run again. Last year, my retina fell off. My eyesight will only ever be half as good as it ever was. 
I am decaying. I am breaking down. I can't turn back time like the jellyfish. I can't start again. And that's okay. It's okay because my dad hugged me in a dream. My mum squeezed my hand. I fell in love with a beautiful girl as we drove across Sydney Harbour Bridge. We make extraordinary things together, the most extraordinary of which are the three new humans who are so much more than the sum of our parts. Turritopsis Dawny lives forever. It's immortal, but it has no whakapapa. It has no mother, no father. It has no son or daughter. Its only parent is itself. Its only child is itself. It lives for eternity, but it never has a lover. The immortal jellyfish never loves, and it is never loved. You and I, all of us here, we don't have eternity, but we have the thing that the immortal jellyfish doesn't have, can never have. We love, and we are loved. That is really quite something, and that for me is the heart of the matter. Uh, I'm Joanna Preston, and I have to follow those four. Um, so, the heart of the matter. I was raised by pedants. Um, it's a bit like being raised by wolves, but you get less venison and more um, importance placed on wearing trousers the right way around. Um, there were, and still are, a large number of teachers in my extended family. Um, we have history teachers, maths teachers, art teachers, and lots and lots of English teachers. This, of course, had a, a lot of effects on me growing up, but the main one was that I got to grow up in a house full of books and with people who loved books and read them and talked about them and argued about them, um, which was a really, really wonderful way of getting a start. Um, I think it made me being here more or less inevitable, and I'm certainly going to blame them next time they want to ask me what I'm doing with my life. Um, a bedtime story was sort of one of those things that was, a, frankly, a human right. And I learned to read very, very young. When I was little, my parents would buy a new book for my brother and me every week, literally every week. Um, and it was absolutely wonderful. And I can, one of my absolute earliest memories has to do with this. And I think I was about three years old. And it was climbing up the little orange stepped bookcase that was in the nursery because um, I wanted to open the door, because I wanted Mum and Dad to read me the, the latest new book. Um, and as frankly, I thought, no, it's morning enough, it's kind of light, and, you know, get up, what are you doing? So the memory sort of happens in a couple of parts. First, I can really clearly remember coming up with the plan and feeling very clever. Number one, climb the bookcase. Number two, open the door. Number three, take the book to Mum and Dad. Number four, victory. You can see where this is going. Um, so here I am climbing up the bookcase, and I can remember things like the, noticing the, the, um, the titles changing and being aware of this. Oh, my things look different when you get up high, and, and I'm getting up to the top of the bookcase, and then I'm sort of looking at this doorknob, which looked roughly the size of a beach ball, but I'm sure it was perfectly normal. Um, and I can remember looking at my own little pudgy three-year-old hand reaching out, for the doorknob that was just too far. 
And so I brought the bookcase down and ended up in a pile of books on the floor with the bookcase on top of me, loud noises, all the usual drama. Um, yeah, it was this sort of slithery, slippery pile of books, you know, little golden books and things like that. But I was so distracted by all of these books around me that um, apparently when my parents arrived in the doorway going, my God, what's happened to our children? What is that noise? Um, I was just sitting there perfectly happy and going, oh, oh yeah, I fell off. Um, but I did get them to read the book to me, so that counts as a victory, I think. My grandmother, though, was the one who had um, brought the bedtime story to an absolute art form. Um, we moved around a lot when I was growing up. So the one place that we always went back to was my grandparents' farm, Cowarrel, on the mid-north coast of New South Wales. It wasn't a fancy place. It was um, a very old farmhouse that had been built by the, the early settlers and sort of, you know, bits added on to it as the families grew. There were four massive old gum trees that made the, the sort of the central pillars of the, 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 um, the middle part of the house. And the walls were literally slabs of hewn timber that my, I think, great-grandfather had cut out of the bush. Um, and the room that we had as kids was just off to one side. Um, it had sort of some of these slabs of timber as one of the walls, but the kitchen was sort of just over a, a little gap um, where we could sort of see them when they were washing up in the evening. And every evening after we'd cleaned our teeth and climbed into bed under a gigantic pile of blankets and a cat or two for company, Grandma would come down and sit on someone's bed and tell us a story. Sometimes she'd read us poetry. Um, she used to read from Tennyson. We had a beautiful, old, uh, very well-thumbed book of the complete works of Alfred Lord Tennyson. And sometimes it was Christina Rossetti. Um, and she'd tell us fairy tales. You know, we'd get Cinderella and Snow White and all the boring ones. But she also liked to tell us some of the more esoteric ones, things like the blue rose or the dog with very large eyes. But the really special part was the stories that she made up just for us. Um, in particular, the tales of Amelia Ant. Now, Amelia was a very um, adventurous young ant, and she used to do things like she'd go to uh, investigate a leaf on the, on the bank of the river and sort of climb on and look around and then slide down into the river and go for a wonderful adventure being whirled away on the current. Or there was another one where, as I recall, it was the unnamed farmer's wife had uh, baked a jam tart and for, the, for, I think it was for the church supper, and it was just cooling on the kitchen table. And, of course, Amelia wanted to sample it and got stuck in the jam. Um, I, don't, I, I don't remember how Grandma resolved that one. I think it was something to do with a, a spilled cup of tea and Timothy Ant, who was Amelia's friend. Um, or there was another one where Amelia was very, very rude to the Queen Ant and was sent to her bedroom. You can see there's a, there is a certain element of, I'm going to tell you a cautionary tale. Don't make me lock you up and turn you into an ant. Um, but we all got older and eventually Grandma telling us these stories became Grandma giving us books. Um, and that was wonderful too, because they were some of them were new books, but they were also old books with inscriptions in them. So to my mother, or my aunts and uncles, or grandma herself. So presents um, and prizes. There wasn't a book. There was sorry. There wasn't a room in the house where you wouldn't find a book, um, which was absolutely wonderful. And I can remember growing up, um, the adults once discussing someone who'd come from a not great house, and the thing that set the seal on this being a deprived household. There were only two books in that house, the Bible and the racing guide. And they only read the racing guide. 
So needless to say, when I finally met my then-boyfriend, now-husband's family, um, the sight of all of their lovely, well-stocked bookcases was really reassuring. I always think Jane Austen should have had a, a slightly different version, which is, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a man without a single damn bookcase had better have no other furniture and be sleeping on the floor, otherwise get the hell out of there, girl, what are you doing? <laughs> slightly seriously, um, in Inventing Human Rights, a History by the historian Lynn Hunt, there's an argument made that the groundswell of the humanitarian revolution, you know, that time in the 1800s, I'm sure you're all familiar with it, um, when people started thinking, you know, maybe slavery and um, child abuse and child labour and, you know, women not being allowed to do anything other than be decorative was not a great thing. It's not a coincidence that this was also the time when there was a real revolution in printing, in mass printing, and a huge revolution in the novel as an art form. Mass literacy and mass printing meant that suddenly anyone could read, um, and the stories that they were reading weren't now just about gods and kings and heroes and important people doing important things. They were about ordinary people and ordinary lives. Um, people like you and me, and people not like you and me. And so the books were giving you a way in, a sort of a portal into these other existences and making it available. Books didn't just ornament the modern world. You can argue that they created it, um, provided this chance to see other things, to shine a light into someone else's life and have it reflect back on us. It allowed us to connect to other people, to their dreams and their hopes and their fears. I mean, that's a heck of a lot to be held by something as frail and temporary as ink and paper. Truly, in some ways, you can think of humans, I think, as instead of homo sapiens, I mean, we're all no homo man the wise, a yeah, little bit dodgy. Um, maybe we should think of ourselves as homo lectorum, human the reader. But the heart of it all for me is something much less grand, much less out there. And it's the greatest joy that I know. Nice, cosy place, somewhere like bed or in the bath or just a cosy chair somewhere. And those words that I always hear in my grandma's voice, once upon a time. Thank you. Thank you so much. That, that was just a wonderful evening of storytelling. We really enjoyed it, and it was wonderful. Um, over the weekend, there, there, um, the authors will be speaking at sessions here at the ASB Theatre and down the road at Teikahu or Waipuna, the new library and art gallery. Um, there are still tickets available, so I encourage you to buy them. And um, we have, yeah, we've had a really great support for the festival this year. Thank you for your support. Um, I just wish you a really lovely evening and a happy weekend mixing and mingling with good people who read books and enjoying meeting your favourite authors. Thank you.